This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. He's one of us. He might disappear from public view. What happened to Jennifer becomes a story of what happened long ago at some point. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. P.J. Raval is an award-winning filmmaker and an associate professor at the University of Texas, one of my favorite colleagues. P.J. is a queer, first-generation Filipino-American who was named one of IndieWire's 25 LGBT filmmakers on the rise in 2019. This episode is about P.J.'s latest film, Call Her Gunda. It's a feature documentary following the story of Jennifer Laude, a transgender woman who was found dead in a motel room in the Philippines. When a 19-year-old U.S. Marine became the main suspect, Jennifer's murder became an international controversy. Where does Jennifer's story make the most sense for you to start? I think what makes the most sense is to think about how the rest of the world learned about Jennifer Laude, which was on October 11th of 2014. Jennifer, unfortunately, was found dead in a motel room, and she was partially clothed with a sheet wrapped around her body. She was discovered by the motel staff, front desk person, and she was in a motel bathroom with her head slumped into the toilet bowl. So she was strangled from behind, but also her head was dunked in the toilet toilet bowl, right, in water. And so she officially died through through drowning. What happened very quickly was since the person last seen with Jennifer was a U.S. Marine, immediately NCIS was informed. And because of the relationship between the United States and the Philippines, they took over the investigation. So local police did come to the crime scene, but they were unable to acquire any evidence or do any initial reporting on their own because it was immediately taken over by the NCIS. So let's back up a little bit. Sure. Who is Jennifer? Who is she as a person, what you found before all this stuff happened? Jennifer, at the time, was 26 years old. She, you know, was a transgender woman, so goes by she, her. And she was living in Alangapo. And for those not familiar, Alangapo is a port town in the Philippines. It is home to one of the largest offshore U.S. naval bases. This area has been a port town for for centuries. She was working as a, in the Philippines, they would refer to them as parlor. Someone who works at the salon, maybe a cosmetician. I think she was doing like hair, maybe someone would say a beautician. She had a younger sister and an older sister also living in Alangapo at the time. The eldest sister had two kids, so she also had a niece and a nephew at the time. From all accounts, she was a extremely generous, smart, talented individual. 
very much loved by her family. In Tagalog, which is the language of the Philippines, the word nanay is used for mother. So nanay, Jennifer's mom, would refer to her as ganda, which in Tagalog means beauty. And that was her nickname ever since she was young. Even Jennifer's mom would tell these stories about how when she was this young child, Jennifer at the time would say, I'm so, I'm so pretty. So you could tell she was very much loved by her family. She also was surrounded by a community of other trans women and speaking to them. The way that they would speak about Jennifer was that she was kind of a natural leader. A lot of them looked up to her. A lot of them turned to her for advice. She was loved by her family and very much well-respected in her community. Do you think there is the same physical threat to transgendered people in the Philippines? I would say the idea of transgender individuals, in this case specifically thinking about trans women facing violence and the threat of violence, I would say every culture, every country, and I think we see this even statistically, the amount of violence that this particular community faces is just so astronomical. So Jennifer's from a fishing town. She's close to her sisters and her mother. Mm -hmm. Where are we when this all starts to happen? She is in cosmetology, we think, right? Mm -hmm. And seemingly successful. She's a leader in the community. People look up to her. How do we transition to the situation that happens? You know, in terms of the culture of the Philippines, it's historically been very difficult for trans individuals to have some kind of employment. We see them in entertainment. So sometimes there are, you know, actors, performers, stage performances by people who would identify as trans. We will see them in salons. We will see them in barbershops, things like that. What's been a challenge is finding employment for trans individuals outside of those two fields. Okay, so they're sort of so, siloed in the Philippines. Yeah, so you don't see a whole lot of trans lawyers or CEOs, right? And I don't think it's because there isn't a interest. It's just this is what discrimination looks like, right? So Jennifer was working in one of the few industries that were available to her, which was working as a parlorista, right? As a, as a beautician. However, a lot of trans women, especially in Ilongapo, also meet a lot of foreigners who are traveling through. A lot of them are military, not only from the United States, but from all over the world. Some trans women will go to these bars, meet these men, have sexual exchanges, right? And sometimes along with these sexual exchanges, comes transactional exchanges, maybe paying for meals, maybe paying for a place that they're living or staying. So what I'm saying is this is kind of a slippery slope because what is considered sex work, maybe this falls into this, maybe it doesn't. But from my understanding, Jennifer did meet foreigners all the time at bars, and there would be these exchanges where they would pay for her drinks. If they would maybe go off to a hotel room or a motel room, they would pay for that. I don't know the extent beyond that. People have referred to Jennifer as a sex worker before. I think if you ask her family, they would say she was not. I think if you ask her friends, they would say you need to ask Jennifer. But I think if you ask Jennifer's friends, if they are, some of them will say, yes, they are sex workers. And some of them will say, no, they're not. So who is she meeting at these bars? Usually cis men and some of them certainly in the military. And a lot of the times these men were looking specifically for 
trans women to have sexual encounters with. Was this something that usually went well or did we hear about violent encounters happening? I think they've all been subject to some kind of violent encounter and they were very much aware of it. And a lot of the times they would tell me that they would often be careful about who would be leaving with so-and-so, kind of keeping each other in check and keeping eyes on each other, so to speak. So that night, Jennifer was at a bar called Ambiance which sadly no longer exists, but still there as a new name. But at the time it was called Ambiance and it was being frequented by a lot of U.S. Marines. A lot of these bars, there's an increase of traffic when these military personnel have R&R. So they are allowed to leave the ship, they're allowed to leave their bases and roam around the town as civilians. And oftentimes... These young men, they want to go to a bar and have some drinks and meet some women. This is where Jennifer was that night with several of her friends. So she encounters a Marine, a U.S. Marine. Correct. Yeah. And they make some sort of an agreement and then they leave together. And the next thing we know about the story is she's found dead. She left ambiance with Joseph Scott Pemberton, who at the time was a private first class. Part of him being out with several of his Marine friends was that he was celebrating potentially getting promoted to being Lance Corporal. And I believe he was with several other Marines at the time. All of them kind of partnered off with a different person. And Jennifer and another friend of hers named Barbie, they left ambiance with Joseph Scott Pemberton and they crossed the street to a short-term motel called Cell Zone Lodge. At the lodge, they arrived around, I believe it's sometime around 10 o'clock at night. Jennifer, Barbie, and Pemberton go to a motel room. And about 20 minutes later, Barbie leaves the motel room, leaving the two of them in there. And then another couple minutes later, 10 or 15 minutes later, Pemberton leaves the motel room and leaves the door cracked open. And so the front desk clerk noticed that the door was cracked open and was expecting Jennifer to be leaving the room at some point also. And when clearly she did not come out is when he knocked on the door and then discovered the crime scene. He calls the police... And the police come. And within how long is this investigation turned over to the U.S. government? That I don't know, actually, how quickly it was turned over. I do know that at the time, Barbie, who, you know, was the friend with Jennifer, she was still at the cell zone lodge. So the front desk clerk also told Barbie. And she and some of the other friends of Jennifer at that point, they all kind of texted each other what was happening. And I remember them telling us that they were unclear what was happening. And they were receiving messages saying that Jennifer had either fainted and passed out or maybe was possibly dead. They didn't know. Um, So they were kind of gathering outside on the sidewalk trying to figure out what was happening. How is he, Joseph Pemberton, how was he tracked down? How do they find him? Well, he went back to the ship. 
his Marine friends were looking for him because they had already gone back to the ship. So I think he was the last person to arrive late. From what I understand, through some reporting from Meredith Toulousan, who's featured in the film, but also through some of the court transcripts, was that Pemberton approached his friend, Jaron Rose, at the time and said these lines, which became very important to the case and to everyone who was paying attention to this unfolding court case, was that he said, I think I killed a he-she. So clearly there was an admission of guilt or understanding what he had done, but then obviously also referring to Jennifer as a he-she. It's a terrible term. Having spoken to some of Jennifer's friends, they said oftentimes there are men who are seeking out trans women specifically. And oftentimes there are some exchanges where you may never reveal your physical body fully naked, for instance. So it kind of all depends. In this case, Jennifer was found clearly naked. All of her clothing had been removed and she had been wrapped in a bed sheet. According to what attorney Virginia Suarez, who represents the Laude family, what she says, which I very much agree with, is there's two people who entered the room. One person leaves, the other person doesn't. And the one person who leaves refuses to talk about what happened in that room. So all we can do is kind of speculate really about this exchange. But I do feel that there are certain pieces of evidence and information that we could look at. Jennifer was found with all of her clothing removed, but wrapped in a sheet in the bathroom. I don't believe that her clothing was found ripped off or anything. So does that mean it was removed with Pemberton's knowledge and him seeing her fully naked? I don't know, but maybe we could assume that is a possibility. When the coroner's report came out, she was also badly bruised in the face, but also from behind. And she was strangled from behind. So we could also assume as a possibility that maybe she had been physically attacked from the front and was maybe trying to escape or flee or leave somehow and was prevented because she was strangled from behind, right? With bruises also behind her. I believe there was a used condom that was found in the trash can. I don't know if the DNA evidence points to anyone in particular. And one could also argue that if this is a motel that is frequented right. heavily. Might not have anything to do with it. Might this. not have to do with them. It could be someone else, right? What does Barbie say about all this? She was there for the first part of this. Yeah. According to Barbie's testimony, she went into the room with the two of them and performed oral sex on Pemberton and left the room with the understanding that he and Jennifer were going to have some kind of sexual exchange at that point. She very much believes that Pemberton was interested in Jennifer sexually. So he's arrested? What happens? He's not arrested. Because he is on the ship and because he is military personnel under the Visiting Forces Agreement, which is a bilateral agreement between the United States and the Philippines, there's a clause in there that basically says when any military personnel is accused of a crime or subject to local law enforcement, that they're protected by the U.S. military and it becomes up to the U.S. military to comply. And so in this case, they did not hand over Pemberton to local authorities, which is usually what would happen in this case, right? If Pemberton were a civilian, not military, and just happened to be in the Philippines and was accused of a crime, he would be detained. 
So in this case, he was unable to be detained and he remained on the ship. What is the reaction of the local press at this point to this story? Is it skewed towards Jennifer and her plight or what is happening in the press? If you go back and you look at the kind of unfolding headlines, you can see the kind of evolution of understanding of what's happening. Some of the first headlines said a man dressed as a woman was found dead in a, in a motel room. And then it started becoming a woman was found dead in a motel room. And then a trans woman was found dead in a motel room. And you see also the suspect being a foreigner, the suspect being an American, the suspect being a U.S. Marine. And eventually the headline that breaks that starts going around the world is that a trans woman is found dead in a motel room with the prime suspect being a U.S. Marine. And is the theme here injustice from the beginning in the press in the Philippines? There are common narratives that are being played out. And this is probably because there are these common narratives that have been playing out, which is part of the injustice here. The narrative of a U.S. Marine meeting a woman at a bar, taking her to a short-term motel room is a common narrative. So that narrative was definitely playing out in the media. Was there sympathy or empathy for Jennifer? Soon as Jennifer was discovered, her trans community quickly mobilized. Good. And they contacted many other trans individuals, LGBT rights activists, specifically trans activists. Around the world or specifically? Around the Philippines specifically. And that immediately activated one of our sisters is in trouble. Let's get the facts here. Let's educate everyone what's happening. So immediately we see a lot of these trans community organizations and social justice organizations posting on social media. This comes to a part of the film that I really like, which is the strength of three women that represent, I think, three very important factions. So you've got an activist attorney mm -hmm. that can really advocate for Jennifer in the courts. You've got a journalist who can work with the press and really get worldwide articles out. And then you've got someone who can humanize her, her mother. Mm-hmm who I'm sure did not anticipate being involved in the media the way she had. So can you sort of lay out the role that these women had moving forward? Pemberton shut down. The military is not really playing ball. Yeah. Where do we go from here and how are these women involved with that? I'm glad you're pointing out that Pemberton shut down because basically Pemberton and the U.S., <laughs> their position was to not say anything, to limit access not make any press statements, not allow for any interviews, not allow for any access, shutting the door. So on the other side, we have, you know, Jennifer's family. And all that they could do at the time was try to gain as much attention about what was happening. And so they eventually became represented by attorney Virginia Suarez. So early on, you start seeing that Jennifer's mom and Jennifer's sisters are in front of cameras having to give statements about, you know, who Jennifer was, how do they feel, all of these things. And as you can imagine, Nanai, Jennifer's mom, was outraged. She was completely devastated, but she was completely outraged and she was completely dedicated to pursuing accountability uh, on behalf of Jennifer. What do you say to the press who might be looking at her as a sex worker who might not be giving her enough empathy or sympathy that this is somebody who really does deserve justice? Nanai took the approach that she knew and felt that was true was that 
her beloved child had been taken from her. That was it. We're talking about these ideas of like transgender, maybe being a political term for some people. You don't understand any of that. What you do understand is loss, right? What you do understand is losing a loved one and how devastated you would feel. And I think that's what the world saw. The world saw this mother that was devastated, really devastated. That kind of hurt and pain is completely something that people understand. So I think that was a huge thing. Around the same time, I was interested in making a film about parents and parenting, right? Because friends of mine were having kids and it was just interesting to see friends of mine who are trans, who are queer, and then cis friends, straight friends having kids whose kids are queer and or trans. And it was for me an interesting time to really think about this relationship between parent and child and very much in the United States at the time we were having these conversations of here are these trans kids and the parents who are trying to accept them. And for me, what was amazing is here is a case where Jennifer's mom's love was so unconditional. You could tell it had nothing to do with Jennifer being trans or not trans. It was just purely, this is my child. I love my child and you have taken my child away from me. You know, for me, there was something really important about that, that it kind of became, yes, we're going to look at all of these factors, U.S. Marine, trans woman, all of these kinds of things. And for Nana, it was just so fundamental. It was just so basic. I think that did resonate. It certainly resonated with attorney Virginia Suarez, Virgie, because Virgie, as a lawyer, as an activist, is also a mother. And she talks a lot about how she's always taking cases and really dealing with defending and representing people who are women, people who have all these barriers to some kind of legal support. And so she just immediately, I think, understood Nanai's position and that she understood Nanai's commitment to really holding someone accountable for what had happened. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. We're talking with filmmaker P.J. Raval about the murder of Jennifer and the fight for justice when her suspected killer was protected by the U.S. government. At what point is there even a court case to deal with? I think soon as it became known that Pemberton was U.S. military, I think a lot of people understood the importance of this playing out in the court system. For those of you who don't know, the Philippines is a former colony of the United States. The Philippines was a former colony for 50 plus years. Some would say up to 100. Some would say that the Philippines functions as a neo-colony to the United States. And clearly we have these agreements very much in favor of the United States. And the Philippines itself is very much receiving a lot of economic aid from the United States, right? So there's this really interdependent relationship. So I think a lot of activists, attorneys, journalists immediately understood 
that there was a lot of importance that's going to be placed on this case because it's going to force everyone to look at these longstanding issues between the two nations. Already with the fact that Pemberton was unable to be detained by local authorities, compounded by the fact that the local authorities had stopped even trying to detain him because they already knew that legally they would not be able to do this. So there's even more importance there for everyone else to have this play out into the court case. So it could be really challenging some of these policies and specifically this agreement between the United States and the Philippines. But what was going to happen? Was he just going to walk away or was the intention of enacting the VFA, the Visiting Forces Act, to take him back to the United States and try him there? What was the next step? I think in other situations... What had happened is by the time local authorities track down some of these individuals, they've usually left the country. And in this case, there was a lot of pressure being placed upon the ambassador at the time. U.S. ambassador to the Philippines. The U.S. ambassador to the Philippines. There was an embargo put on the ship, so it would not leave the Philippines. Ordered by the ambassador? Ordered by the ambassador. And I believe that's partially why Pemberton remained in the Philippines. So then what happens next? He's on a ship and the U.S. has taken over. Do they interview him or what happens? Well, yeah. So basically what happens is the family file a court case. The prosecutor says, yes, there is a court case here. So we should start scheduling a court case and Attorney Virginia Suarez becomes the Laude family representative along with Harry Roque. It's decided that this will go to court. It will be tried in the Ilongapo Regional Court. Jury trial as far as you know? No, tried by a single judge. He will be represented by a private law firm. He has to hire an attorney. Well, what we do know is that the private law firm that is hired is also one that's often hired by the U.S. military. Okay, so he goes to trial. Evidence is given. Does he have any kind of a defense? His defense is what some people would call the trans-panic defense. Mm -hmm. This is something we have seen play out in the United States. So even with Matthew Shepard in Laramie, Wyoming, where two men met Matthew at a bar, end up bringing him out to a field in the middle of the night, kill him very brutally, and leave him tied up in a fence. They claimed gay panic because as soon as they found out that he was gay, they were not in their rightful mind and they had to protect themselves, right? Which, even if we're trying to just apply any kind of logic, we would say, well, clearly, if you did not agree with this individual, you could just leave, right? Right. There's no reason you would have to take them out into a field, beat them up, string them up, leave them there to die. It makes no sense. But unfortunately, it has been a defense that has been used in the United States throughout history and has been somewhat successful. Likened to that is this concept of the trans panic defense. You meet an individual who identifies as trans and suddenly you just cannot be rational at that point and it ends up with you feeling like you must defend yourself and that means physically harming the other person. This had never been used before in the Philippines in the court of law. However, this is the first time it's being used, right? In the Philippines? In the Philippines, yeah. It's being brought in by a defense team representing this American Marine. So part of the defense was they had been drinking, 
part of the defense was Jennifer had deceived him. And then the big defense was, and Jennifer was trans. And therefore, Pemberton was not in his right mind. He felt so deceived, so lied to that he had to protect himself from being assaulted by this trans individual. I mean, it's insane. One thing that we do know is Jennifer weighed, I think, the equivalent of like 90 pounds, right? 90 U.S. pounds. And Pemberton weighs way more than that. So she's clearly not a threat. She's clearly not a threat. She's been working as a beautician. Pemberton is a trained military agent. On top of being strangled from behind. Yes. And so even in the sense of saying that Pemberton felt physically threatened by Jennifer, I think is a really hard argument to make, yet this is the argument that is being made. So this was all done in self-defense. What is the reaction of the press in the Philippines to this defense? A lot of people could see how this was injustice unfolding in front of them. The fact that you have this Marine who's unable to be detained, and the fact that you have this Marine who's claiming that he's being physically threatened by someone who's much smaller than him, someone that he paid for a motel room to be in with, someone who he met and invited them across the street. You know, sadly, you see a lot of transphobia, transmisogyny, a lot of things happen too, where you start seeing a lot of social media posting saying that Jennifer deserved this or how dare someone trick you. At the same time, we have this Justice for Jennifer movement that's starting. There's also, albeit a much smaller, but also a Justice for Joseph Scott Pemberton kind of Hmm. movement that comes across saying that he had been deceived and he was not guilty of anything. I hate to say it, but it comes a little bit of he says, she says, right? But what's really interesting about it is it's not Pemberton. It's actually the defense team. Pemberton never once makes any public statements. He doesn't show up to the trial. He doesn't show up to any of the proceedings. He shows up once to the pretrial. He shows up again for the actual verdict announcement. That's it. So what is, after all of this, the decision of the judge? So the judge finds Pemberton guilty, but not of murder, but guilty of homicide, meaning it was not intentional. And she claims that there were mitigating circumstances. And some of the mitigating circumstances is that they had been drinking. Some of the mitigating circumstances were that she did not feel that there was treachery. The judge had also felt there wasn't a clear argument to say that Jennifer was not a physical threat. And even with the height differences, weight differences, strength differences, she believed that Pemberton was clearly more physically powerful than Jennifer. So some would argue that that in itself is an act of transphobia, right? Saying that that this judge is not accepting the fact that as a trans woman, Jennifer was smaller and then the mitigating circumstances of them drinking. She finds Pemberton guilty of homicide, not murder. She sentences Pemberton to six to 12 years in the national prison. Now, from my understanding, for a crime of that degree, it usually would start at much higher. Hmm. So already it had been downgraded in this case. So according to her sentence, he should immediately be taken into custody by local officials and escorted to the national prison. However, that's not what happens. The Marines physically surround him so that the local officials cannot detain him. And there's a standoff that happens for three plus hours. It was really unexpected. Wow, why? What happened? 
you know, I was not allowed in the courtroom, but the family and the attorneys would come down and tell me what's happening, give press statements, and basically Pemberton was sitting there, yeah, physically surrounded by these Marines who were not willing to let him be detained by local authorities. So the local authorities were surrounding them, standing around, realizing that this might actually result in guns being drawn or something. So the judge is in her chambers and refuses to come out. And then she makes a motion, and her motion is that Pemberton will remain in custody of the United States until further notice. And it really ends up being kind of like a dot, dot, dot. Like, what does that mean? It just means that tonight he's going back to where he's being held. For the first part of the investigation, Pemberton was being held on the ship. After that, Pemberton was brought to Camp Algonado, which is technically a Philippine military facility. However, there was one area that they designated for Pemberton to be held in while he was going through the trial, and this area of the military base would be under only the supervision of the United States. <laughs> so, oh <it's>, gosh. <laughs> so even if we think about like a military base in the Philippines that's under jurisdiction of the United States, like here's a mini version of it, right? We have an actual Filipino military base and there will be only one section of it that is under the jurisdiction of the United States. So that's where he pretty much stayed. And from my understanding, he was in a 400-square-foot studio apartment. Oh like, gosh. I think he had his own kitchen. He has his own bathroom. He was given internet access. Oh, gosh. Incredible. Um, so when the military refused to hand him over, he went back to this facility. He was there for several more months, and then comes the appeals process. Pemberton appeals several times the conviction. Once at the regional court, the defense team files a motion of reconsideration, meaning they ask the judge to reconsider their sentence. No additional evidence provided, no additional arguments, just clearly asking the judge to reconsider. And she does, actually. She further downgrades <sighs> the sentence. So it goes from 6 to 12 years to 5 to 10 years. What's the reason for that? No statement was made other than she made the argument that since he had been held already in trial so for time a year, served. maybe some time served, okay. right? And then it gets appealed to the Court of Appeals. And they're basically asking to overturn the decision. They deny his request. So from that point on, it goes to the third and final, which is the Supreme Court. The defense team is making all of the arguments, saying that he's already served with good behavior. Virgie and the legal team representing the Laude family argue in response, saying, how can you have good behavior if you're not around anyone else? Right. <laughs> you know? and, and they also argue he's actually not being treated like someone would be if they were properly incarcerated. Something that becomes a surprise to everyone is that Duterte, President Duterte, the president of the Philippines, issues a total pardon, total oh. and absolute pardon. Yeah. And I want to clarify that what this pardon does is it does not pardon Pemberton from the crime. But what it does pardon him is from any additional sentencing that needs to happen. So basically, this pardon allows Pemberton to kind of walk free and say that he's served his time, even though he never once stepped foot in an actual prison facility. How long was he there total? 
It's about four and a half years at that point that he's been in the Philippines. The legal team kind of knew after five years of legal proceedings that the defense team would try something. So Duterte issued this pardon. Who's playing politics? Who's playing politics, yeah. One thing I will mention also was that when Pemberton was convicted, he became the first U.S. military person convicted of a crime in the Philippines. Wow. And for those who don't know, the U.S. has been actively in the Philippines for over 100 years. Yeah, so obviously not the first American to commit a crime in the Philippines. Exactly, but the first person to really been accused of and found guilty. So it was a historic win that unfortunately was undermined by this ongoing, you know, injustices that kind of were in the favor of Pemberton. However, even though President Duterte issued an absolute pardon, it still remains that he was found guilty and convicted. So for me, I do think the silver lining is now there's legal precedence. It is possible to hold U.S. military personnel accountable for crimes in the Philippines. What has been the reaction of your film, just worldwide, wherever it's gone? I think in the Philippines, the reaction largely has been an opportunity for everyone to see what was happening kind of behind closed doors. A lot of this was playing out in the media. A lot of this was playing out literally at the courthouse. So I think for people, it's an opportunity to see what the family was going through just on a day-to-day basis. In the United States, and I think for the rest of the world, it's also been an eye-opener for a lot of people. Was this film difficult for you? Yes. <laughs> that, one, that one I can give you a very quick answer. Yes, <laughs> it was difficult. The things that were most difficult about this was understanding how significant this story and case is, thinking about the relationship between the U.S. and the Philippines. And as someone who identifies as a queer Philippine American, understanding the importance of this moment what this film has the power to do in terms of sharing Jennifer's story, in terms of amplifying whatever messages are coming from the activists themselves or tapping into just the empathy that people would have for Nanai, for Jennifer's mom and really understanding what happened. A lot of the times we think of these big issues, we're thinking about laws and we're thinking about history, but really at the end of the day, someone's loved one was killed. And if I can share that experience experience connecting these really big issues that seem impersonal and make them incredibly personal. So understanding the potential and power of that in a film and through sharing a story is incredibly intimidating, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I didn't want to disappoint. I didn't want to take something that was so incredibly important to me and I understood was incredibly important for so many people and do it wrong. And this is not the first film I've made. And I don't think this could have been the first film that I've made. I think I had to kind of make my way here and graduate towards this. I I think Jennifer and Jennifer's story is part of a much larger narrative. And part of what I wanted to do was connect those dots. Was Jennifer killed because she's trans? Was Jennifer killed because she's poor? Was Jennifer killed because she's Filipino? I believe it's all three of these things. And the reason that a U.S. Marine can come to the Philippines and feel like they can do that is because of this much larger narrative that's been going on for over a century. So for me, I wanted to be able to tell Jennifer's story and be able to connect it to these much larger issues. So really, what killed Jennifer? It's also history. 
It's also U.S. imperialism. All of those things killed Jennifer, not just Pemberton, but it's these much larger things. They are very personal to someone. Okay, is there anything else you want to add or anything I need to change? Or Okay, I guess there's one last thing I want to say. Pemberton made no statements, was not available for interview by anyone, was not seen by anyone for over a year. You know, it became questionable whether or not he was even in the Philippines anymore. And ultimately, on the other side, you have Jennifer's family, and all they could do was be vocal. All they could do was share their story and with anyone who would understand and see and feel impassioned to support them and keep moving. So one thing that was, I think, really telling was that when Pemberton was finally released and being returned to the United States on his way from where he was being held to the airport. He issued a statement through his lawyer, and the lawyer basically said, during this time period, he's thought a lot about what happened, and he wishes things were different. That was it. Hmm. Pemberton now comes back to the United States, never has to once ever apologize, say anything. And he is here, back in the United States, among us. He's one of us now. He's not this figure that's being held in a foreign country. For me, that's kind of the biggest injustice of all, is he might disappear from public view. What happened to Jennifer becomes a story of what happened long ago at some point. Part of me wanting to make this film, part of what all the activists are doing, part of what Jennifer's family is doing, is not only keeping Jennifer's spirit alive, but keeping change and the reason we need change, moving it forward still. Not only is Pemberton allowed to move forward, but he's allowed to disappear. And this could happen again. And this could happen again. On the next episode of Wicked Words. One of his professors you know, exhorted the new medical students to be upright and godlike and to come between the living and the dead. And Cream seems to have decided, well, I'm going to be godlike, but he would decide who lived and who died. If you love historical true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right, Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer. Andrew Epen is our sound designer. Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition. Nick Toga did the artwork. And Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.